You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard. Your host, and with me today is Dr. Frederick Skip Burkle, Senior Fellow at the Harvard Humanitarian Initiative, Harvard School of Public Health. We'll be speaking with Dr. Burkle from Hawaii today, and we'll be discussing health issues in Iraq, the past, the present, and the future. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Dr. Burkle, I know that you were head of the Ministry of Health in 2003. Could you give us an overview of what health care was like in 2003 in Iraq when the war began? Yes. I think the situation was made severe by the extensive looting that occurred. And this began to occur even before the war was over. And it certainly occurred in Baghdad before they declared the war over in Baghdad and then in the entire country. And as I stated before, we predicted that this would happen because this has occurred before in Iraq. And I had actually witnessed this after the first war. I had witnessed the entire looting of the city of Tehuk, which is a beautiful city in the mountain areas north of Mosul. And just south of where the Kurdish uh, refugee crisis occurred. And this was a severe enough to catalyze a um, political collapse, and I think it really did. There was a lot of publicity, you recall, about the looting of the hospitals. But the thing that concerned me most, uh, which was not mentioned in the press, was the looting of the public health system, the public health departments and the laboratories. So laboratories in hospitals, the looting, they removed microscopes, they removed petri dishes and media. So it certainly limited the Iraqis' ability to even determine what might occur, what might be the etiology of any particular outbreak. And so the system came to an end. It really did collapse, and that was of great concern. But the Iraqis' concern about this was the fact that there was no security being provided by the coalition forces, both to allow people to come to the hospitals day and night, and also security for the staff, the nurses and the doctors. And they were concerned that their homes were being looted when they were coming to work. And many things were looted. The uh, emergency departments were now nothing more than stretchers. They didn't even have simple sheets. The Yarmouk Hospital, which is a thousand bed, the largest public health hospital in Baghdad, the beds were removed, so patients who had had surgery and then were placed on wards where there was unfortunately very little staff to take care of them, as soon as the people left the patient there, people came in and uh, threw the patients on the floor and looted the beds. CAT scans, the motherboards from CAT scans were removed, and the entire cardiac care units and the monitors were removed. So they really didn't have anything basic, but what their request was is to provide security first. And unfortunately, the coalition forces did not have the forces to provide security for them. An example of that was that the security at the opening of the Yarmouk Hospital was just a Bradley vehicle with a small number of coalition forces. Insurgents were able to come in from other entrances and uh, loot the hospital and even terrorize uh, patients 
while the coalition security forces were just outside the entrance. And when doctors and nurses ran out to alert them that this was happening, they said, well, we don't have the ability to react to this. We'll call for reinforcements. So the security, as far as military police, and even civil affairs resources, which were still in many situations way back at the beginning of the pipeline, were just not adequate to provide the security needed for basic care. You know, Iraq had gone through an eight-year war with Iran. It then had the first Gulf War, and then it had 12 years of sanctions. Did their health system ever get to any kind of reasonable level before this new onslaught began? No, well, it probably came up somewhat to the way it was in Baghdad. But in the Shiite South, so that's the largest part of that country that really did have a tremendous amount of collateral damage from the first war, Sodom refused to rehabilitate that area. So that's an important point you bring up because the health indices were certainly quite good in the Kurdish north. They were the worst in the Shiite south, and they were somewhat in between in and around Baghdad. So the surveillance system had already shown that it was quite uneven throughout Iraq, and it had declined in all indices, as I had mentioned. You know, with the looting of the hospitals, wasn't there a mass exodus of doctors leaving Iraq, and weren't they also even targeted, especially in Baghdad and Mosul, for murder? Yes, but, you know, that occurred slowly, and uh, during the looting time, there were certainly a number of threats, and that began really along tribal and sectarian lines, but that really started to get worse and really peaked in 2006, so it just gradually got worse over time. I know you served in Vietnam. Can you draw any comparisons between the medical care that was provided to civilians in Vietnam and what existed in Iraq? Yeah, I think there are, and there are some lessons learned. First, uh, during the Vietnam era, the U.S. Agency for International Development actually had more employees in Iraq than they have full-time now in 2007. So it was a much more robust organization. And uh, they did have a number of programs, MILFAP programs and others. And one of the programs that was quite decent during that time was they didn't go in to replace health care, but actually the emphasis was on training doctors and nurses during that time to take over. The unfortunate thing is that uh, when the war ended and the communist north took over, it was those MILFAP people that we trained that were some of the first to be either put in prison or assassinated. But the attempt to keep the mortality and morbidity during the warring down was the responsibility of the State Department and USAID. And from my observations there, I thought they did a very decent job. And that was not the case during this particular situation because there was no planning for it. I mean, there was some planning for it, but again, that was just shunned and ignored once the Department of Defense took over. 
If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, and I'm speaking with Dr. Frederick Skip Burkle, who is a senior fellow at the Harvard Humanitarian Initiative at the Harvard School of Public Health. And we're discussing health care in Iraq, and we're trying to build a story from 2003 to what follows afterwards. We've often seen that... If a civilian reaches AFTH, that is the Air Force Theater Hospital in Balad, they get the best trauma care that probably exists in the world. What happens after those civilians leave Balad? Well, they're returned to the civilian hospitals, and that's really been a concern of the military because they know that there's going to be a decrease in the quality of care. I have to mention that if there were improvements provided to the civilian population, it was really done by the coalition military. But their programs were rather ad hoc and inconsistent. But the conscience was there, and I think they realized their responsibilities under these Geneva Conventions. But again, they were not supported by the coalition provisional authority. So what they did was quite up to themselves, depending on what they were seeing in their own areas. But yes, they're well aware that what they provide, that they're sending patients to areas or back to care that may not be as the quality that they were able to provide initially in the resuscitation period. And, and that's unfortunate. And that's actually continued to deteriorate. Uh, you know, Oxfam did a study in July of 2007, so not too long ago, to emphasize the fact that uh, Iraq had gone from a developed country to a developing country model, not unlike what we saw in some of the more primitive tribal situations in Africa. But in their report in 2007, already 28% of the children were malnourished. So that was quite a large increase. Uh, 15% of the Iraqis by that time couldn't even afford basic food for health. 70% lacked any clean water and 43% were living in absolute poverty. And from the health side, 90% of the hospitals during that study lacked even basic medical and surgical supplies. So just basic medicines, uh, basic bandages, and certainly basic anesthesia, local and otherwise, to take care of the wounded. They certainly did not have the critical care follow-up that would have been expected after they released from some of the coalition hospitals. Have you had an opportunity to visit some of the civilian hospitals? No, I didn't, but I certainly have kept in touch with many of my Iraqi colleagues who were desperately keeping me informed and asking, why was this happening? Recently, in Lancet articles 2004, 6, and 7, there's been difficulty in actually numbering the amount of deaths that one would call indirect deaths in this or any other disaster. This is really kind of an unknown number. In other words, trying to count or figure out the amount of deaths and devastation that don't actually wind up in the emergency room of a hospital. This is important information, and why is this so difficult for us to obtain? 
Yeah, the real reason is the insecurity that is constant in these kinds of situations. We have in the past relied upon the media to provide us with some ballpark figure of what the deaths are, but the media gets their figures from Ministry of Health, from more countings, and from hospital facilities. And we know that the best uh, in any wars, not just this war, is probably only 30% of the actual deaths. And in situations where there is actually tremendous violence, more acute violence than many of the wars that have occurred over the last several decades, the media is really only counting about 5% of the deaths. So unless there is a surveillance system provided through the Ministry of Health, most of the deaths will go unaccounted for. What is counted are the direct deaths from, obviously, violence. This often comes from the military findings, whatever, uh, but may or may not be revealed in a timely and accurate fashion to the media and to other people who are studying that. But the indirect deaths and morbidity that occurs, we really don't know. We really don't have accurate uh, measures of this even in other wars besides the one that's going on right now in Iraq. I want to thank Dr. Frederick Skip Burkle for being our guest today, and we've been discussing health care to the civilian population in Iraq. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. For questions and comments, please send your emails to xm at reachmd.com or visit us at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.